You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. There's very little on the coal upside, unless something amazing happens with carbon capture technology that we're not anticipating. I think we almost certainly see coal continue to slide downward. This isn't something that needs to be partisan. It is partisan because of the actions of the fossil fuel industry and the electric utilities. For 2-2-2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Oil prices are at a seven-year high, oil demand is ratcheting back up, and natural gas is in demand as never before around the world. So what does this mean for the energy transition? To hear the oil and gas industry tell it, this is the predictable result of an energy transition that is moving too quickly, and evidence that the world needs to take care to maintain investment in conventional fossil fuels, even as the transition proceeds, in order to avoid excessive volatility. But that's a facile reading of a complex situation, because most of the current volatility in oil and gas isn't about energy transition at all, but rather the result of the impact that the pandemic has had on the global economy, and in many ways the result of the industry's own actions. And yet, it's not entirely not about energy transition either. The transition to EVs from oil burners, for example, is finally starting to pose a real threat to future oil demand. And attitudes toward natural gas are turning as sour as the UAE's gas reserves as preferences for more efficient electric heat pumps, induction stoves, and other appliances that don't combust fuel continue to grow and be written into policy, even as gas-producing regions try to head off those threats to their market share using legal tools. To help us sort through the various countervailing factors in this complex picture, I asked our old friend Bloomberg Energy opinion columnist Nonpareil Liam Denning to return to the show. You'll remember him from our discussion about the disruptors of energy transition in episodes 66 and 67, as well as our discussion about that rare moment when oil prices went negative right after the pandemic lockdown started two years ago. In today's conversation, we talk through the state of affairs for the global oil and gas business, as well as the outlook for it during the transition, and try to discern how it will fare in light of increasingly stringent climate policy over the coming years. Then in the news segment, we'll review the history and current state of power plants equipped with carbon capture technology. We'll consider some new allegations about Russia's influence on Europe's natural gas prices. We'll take a look at the latest numbers on EV sales. And we'll salute a suite of new programs to reduce carbon emissions and increase offshore wind production in New York. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, announcements, announcements... We're very pleased to welcome the University of California, Los Angeles as our latest site licensee. So if you're a student or faculty at UCLA, drop an email to support at energytransitionshow.com to find out how to sign up for an account through their license. We also have several new features on our website to tell you about. By popular demand, we've made it possible to search our transcripts. Full members can log into our website, click on Episodes in the top bar, and then use our transcript search box to find transcripts containing specific words. Clicking on a search result will take you right to your search term in the transcript. We also have some new enhancements to our job board. Free subscribers can now see a sample of past job posts so they can see what kind of jobs they're missing out on there. 
We also now include a selection of recent job postings in our email alerts for those who have opted into our show alerts. And there have been some great jobs posted lately, like a postdoc in modeling and measuring solar for a major European university, a research director for a leading nonprofit in Canada, and a data scientist for an energy storage company in the U.S. We're also mailing a survey to our job posters so we can find ways to improve the job board. So please let us know your thoughts. Finally, we now offer SMS text alerts. Full members can log in to receive text alerts whenever there's a new episode or a new job posted to our job board. To opt in to our new email and SMS alerts, just go to the Manage Subscription page on our website and click on Update Profile. And now, our interview with Liam Denning, recorded January 18th, 2022. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Liam, to the Energy Transition Show. Chris, honored as ever to be on the show. <laughs> well, it has been a while, and despite the continuing progress of energy transition, I still hear plenty of people associated with the oil and gas industry in particular claiming that the real transition is still far in the future or that it isn't even happening yet. And they assure us that oil and gas demand will remain strong for decades to come. And I find that hard to understand when there are such stark changes happening all over the world. I mean, in 2020, Great Britain went over two months without burning any coal for power generation. And last year, they announced that they would cease using coal to generate electricity entirely starting in October 2024. I mean, that's a massive shift from just eight years ago, when Britain was still getting almost 40% of its power generation from coal. Coal is also on the way out in the U.S. and in much of the rest of the developed world, as we've talked about on the show. Global oil demand, which used to increase reliably by about 1% a year, equivalent to about a million barrels per day today, has been stuck at around the 100 million barrels per day level, plus or minus, for the past four years. Now, granted, the advent of COVID-19 caused a big dip in demand in 2020, and IEA thinks demand is probably going to almost get back to the 100 million barrels per day level on an annual basis this year. But that long, enduring growth trend that was in place for decades seems to be gone, or at least much weaker than it was before. Even world natural gas demand seems to have a weakening outlook, with gas demand in the developed world countries of the OECD about even with 2018 now, and with demand in the Americas actually lower in 2021 than it was in 2018. And that's primarily because natural gas has a shrinking, not a growing share of electricity generation due to the growing share of renewables in the energy transition. Meanwhile, all of the energy transition solutions, wind and solar and hydrogen electrolyzers and so on, they're all posting double-digit growth rates year after year, and that certainly isn't doing nothing to fossil fuel demand. So the transition looks very real indeed to me, and in fact, I fully expect it to accelerate from now on and to put the lie to these sanguine projections from the fossil fuel industry. So how do you see it? Well, Chris, I'm going to be a bit annoying and say that I think in some ways you answered your own question. I think it's the nature of a transition that... If, broadly speaking, there are two quote-unquote sides to it, when you're in that transition, you can see both sides of it. So, in very broad terms, we live in a world where fossil fuels have a, for the sake of argument, let's call it a near monopoly on most of our energy needs. And that's particularly apparent in things like road transportation, where oil is king. And I think it's in the nature of that sort of situation where if things really haven't changed for a hundred years or so, any sign of that changing is worth headlines. It's a big deal. So for example, your example of the UK and coal power, that will leap out because 
if something is a monopoly, then any challenge to that monopoly is necessarily a big deal. Now, the other side of the equation, though, is that if the incumbent system is enormous, and by any measure, the incumbent energy system is enormous, then it's quite easy to look at any change and say, okay, that's noteworthy, but let's compare absolute raw numbers here. And from that perspective, it's quite easy to say, sure, you know, we sold six and a half million electric vehicles last year. But in the grand scheme of things, 1.2 billion passenger vehicles on the road around the world today, it's a drop in the ocean. That's a long way of saying when you're in the middle of a transition, it's quite easy for both sides to portray themselves as either upsetting the apple cart or keeping the apple cart broadly stable. Mm. Yeah, and in fact, you're reminding me now of a couple of our recent episodes with Kingsmill Bond and with Peter Newell, where they framed the same point as the incumbent industry emphasizes the stocks, whereas the transitionistas, if you will, emphasize the flows. But well, they answered there's... it way better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's a fair point that you can look at it both ways or that the oil and gas industry or the fossil fuel industry representatives can certainly make a case that there is a great deal of embedded demand and that it is very difficult to transition away from it. But surely they cannot deny that it's happening, that energy transition is actually happening, that it is in fact eating away at demand at the margins and that eventually it's very likely to eat away at demand on an absolute basis. I think you're right. And to be honest, I mean, serious people within the oil and gas industry, and that ranges from corporate management to observers, I don't think there's anyone now who really denies that the situation is changing. I mean, only this morning before we were recording this, you know, I was writing about ExxonMobil adopting a partial net zero target, and we can obviously debate the usefulness of that target or how complete it is. But I think if you went back a few years and asked your your three-year younger self, hey, do you think you'll see Exxon make any kind of net zero target within the next five years? You probably would have said no, because the industry has been fairly implacably, by that I mean the oil and gas fossil fuel industry writ large, has been fairly implacably opposed at first to the very idea of climate change, and then as that shifted to the idea that much could be done to address it beyond maybe adapting to it after it happened. So I think that's point one. I don't think anyone serious denies that change is happening. You can see it physically just in the very vehicles that are running down the streets these days. Where there's obviously a difference is the pace of transition. And I think the other thing that's become particularly apparent in the past year, for me at least, amid the pandemic and then amid this energy crunch that emerged over the winter, particularly in Europe, is the volatility that's involved. You know, part of the problem of a word like transition is that it implies a very smooth handing off, almost like a relay race, when of course it doesn't work that way, particularly in a market like energy, which has to balance in real time or near time. And so you end up with all sorts of discontinuities that happen. The one that's getting a lot of press at the moment is 
you know, on the one hand, you have a growing kind of momentum towards shifting energy supply away from fossil fuels. But on the other, you have a desire for the incumbent industry to keep investing just enough so that we don't face energy shortages in the meantime. And that's obviously been a source of a lot of schadenfreude on the part of the oil and gas industry this winter, as they claim that victimization of the industry is leading to energy shortages. And it's also led to accusations that we aren't really addressing the demand side of the equation quickly enough to foster the energy transition that we need. Yeah, you know, speaking of Exxon and their latest announcement, I liked your Bloomberg colleague Eric Rostin's remark on Twitter this morning saying, Exxon considers skipping dessert and no snacking between meals by 2050. (laughs) (laughs) Eric does have a way with words. (laughs) You know, my take on, on the Exxon announcement is, look, clearly from a societal point of view, a scope one and two net zero ambition is it's a little like being half pregnant or even one fifth pregnant because you're basically ignoring 80 odd percent of the actual emissions which are the scope three emissions right in some ways i did find it useful and i'll explain what i mean by that it's useful in the sense that look just as you find it remarkable that the uk can run without coal power for an extended period It's also remarkable that a company like Exxon has even announced any kind of net zero ambition Mm -hmm. and clearly reducing its operational emissions contributes to reducing emissions and thereby the threat of climate change at the margin. Fine. What I found really useful about it is that Exxon has, for the past year and a half, kind of had a bee in its bonnet about scope three emissions. You may remember towards the end of 2020, it announced in a somewhat grudging press release that it would finally put out an estimate of its scope three emissions, which it then did in 2021. However, it always emphasizes that these numbers are effectively useless because it doesn't control what happens with its products. That's up to society. If society demands oil and gas, then Exxon's going to provide it. And in a way, Exxon is right. We do demand that oil and gas. It is still the vast majority of the energy we use along with coal. However, I think there is a problem there. The whole premise there is that Exxon, along with other oil and gas companies, is some kind of neutral party. Society turns up and says, we want oil and gas, and Exxon and the other oil and gas companies just take that signal and they provide it. It doesn't really work that way. Exxon, along with other oil and gas companies, have been lobbying for decades to make sure that the need for oil and gas is maintained, even as we've become painfully aware of its inherent major flaw, which is its contribution to climate change. So I actually found it useful when Exxon announced this, because I think it does draw attention to a glaring problem here. One is, yes, as a society, we need to make collective decisions about how we incentivize alternatives to the use of oil, gas and coal. Fine. But I think it also draws attention to the fact that the industry has been playing an enormous part in blocking progress on that front. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the main value that I find in this Exxon announcement is that it represents a real capitulation. Like Exxon is always the last oil major to come along with whatever the latest advance in energy transition is. They're the most recalcitrant of all the oil majors. They're the most vigorous defenders of the oil and gas industry, the least willing to play along with anything related to energy transition, the ones that are most willing to fight. And so when they actually admit that they have to do something, to me, that you might as well just put flashing lights and a siren on it. That's a real capitulation from the oil industry. And so I think that there's meaning in that as well, even if it is sort of, as Eric points out, a bit weak tea. But again, I do wonder whether the energy transition supporters should be concerned about the demand outlook going forward. I mean, the oil and gas industry certainly seems to think that they have just decades of robust demand ahead of them. I guess they always say that. But how much should we believe that? I mean, how much is oil and gas demand likely to increase in the future for how long and by how much? I think supporters of the energy transition are right to be concerned, but I'm not sure that that's hugely surprising. Again, it comes back to the idea of the sheer scale of the system you're trying to replace. There is so much embedded infrastructure, so much embedded capital, and so much embedded, frankly, political power, geopolitical relationships around the trading and use of fossil fuels, that changing that is an enormous collective task. And despite the clear signs of change happening, ranging from the anecdotal to what's clearly happening in the data, particularly with regards to things like medium and long-term coal demand and costs of renewable energy and batteries and that sort of thing, the scale of the task is so big and the time scales that we're talking about have shrunk so much as we've better understood the nature of the threat of climate change that of course we should be worried. I think the oil industry, the position there is a little more, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I think at a very basic level, it's hard for any industry to talk publicly about its own mortality. <laughs> You're not going to see the oil and gas industry take out full page ads saying, well, we've got a decade to go, boys, let's live it up. Like, <laughs> you can't do that. I mean, A, it's just culturally, it sort of goes against what corporations do, right. but it has real world effects. It's very hard to recruit people if you say to them, by the way, join us and in 10 to 15 years you'll probably need a new career <laughs> and it also affects your ability to raise capital sure which the industry is already seeing now on the other hand they do have this incumbency one of the things i was thinking during the winter as i've seen more and more of this kind of i told you so stuff coming from commentators around the oil and gas industry along the lines of we've gone too far with this transition stuff and now we don't have enough fossil fuels and right. we've got these huge prices, et cetera, et cetera. It's weird for me to see the oil and gas industry playing itself as the victim. I mean, we need to understand even today at $80 a barrel or thereabouts, this is an industry raking in, in upstream oil alone, not even gas, not even coal, not even downstream oil, 
eight billion of revenue a day. It's very hard for an industry like that to really portray itself as a victim or somehow under attack. Now, sure, rhetorically and in lobbying terms, yeah, it's under attack. But is that any different from what the industry has done itself against climate scientists, against the movement to foster alternatives? Mm -hmm. Not so much. To me, I mean, you know, if you're in the game, you're in the game. Fine. But I do think the industry actually can point to its incumbency, can point to the fact that demand for oil is likely to exceed 2019 levels within the next couple of years and say, well, you know, for all this talk of an energy transition, my, my, isn't it happening very slowly and actually demand doesn't look too bad. There's an added wrinkle to it, though, which is important, which I wanted to bring up. And this is something that I've observed, particularly with regards to what's happened with shale and that onshore U.S oil and gas industry over the past few years. And it's this, incumbency isn't enough. You and I as observers may look at an industry making 8 billion a day and say, that industry looks pretty financially healthy to me, no worries there. But if your industry model is predicated on never-ending growth, then you actually have a problem. I mean, it's worth looking at what's happened to oil markets back over, say, the last seven or eight years, going back to the 2014 crash, that crash in oil prices that got going in, in the second half of 2014. Right. The oil market moves on incredibly small fluctuations in the balance of supply and demand, as we know. Mm. COVID was a huge shock, obviously, took prices into famously into negative territory on NYMEX, but it really doesn't take that big a swing to move this market. And in an industry where the promise has always been, if I mess up on my investment today, if I overextend myself, if I borrow too much, if I drill too many wells, or if I drill this really expensive project and it takes five years longer than I thought, in that industry, the presumption has always been even if I screw up, the cycle will eventually save me. Even if I luck out on this one, eventually prices will come back. Investors generally forget the mistakes of the past and we'll be into another bull market. Hmm. What's important this time around is that that mentality doesn't hold as well as it used to. The other day I was looking at energies waiting in the S&P 500, which... 2008, when oil prices hit their peak of almost 150 bucks a barrel, energy was 16% of the S&P 500. The other day, it was at 3%, and it had clawed its way back there from sub 3%. At yeah. various points over the last year or two, energy had literally been the smallest sector in the S&P 500. Now, leaving the numbers aside, what that tells you is that the sector had become a rounding error, an irrelevance almost from a portfolio manager's perspective. And consider that an industry whose products remain the biggest sources of energy to humanity had become an irrelevance in the market. Yeah, That tells you there is something at least very wrong 
in the industry's relationship with investors. And I think it boils down to a couple of things. I think one is the energy transition, looking forward. So today, if you buy an oil and gas stock, now, you may not be of the opinion that this industry is dead in five years or 10 years or even 20 years, but you may take a rather careful position and say, I want to be sure that whatever this company is investing in, that they have stress tested the hell out of it and they are going to be ready if oil demand does start to drop in, say, 2030 mm -hmm. or even earlier or maybe later. But the idea is this industry needs to demonstrate that it's able to live in a world where demand for the product isn't growing, where it's still large, but it isn't necessarily growing. The second part of it is this industry is living down its history. The remarkable thing about the shale boom of the prior decade, the single greatest decade in terms of an increase in US oil and gas production mm -hmm. ever, all the way back to the 1860s. And yet energy was the worst performing sector by far yeah. in the capital markets. And why? Because shale in particular kind of adopted a WeWork model, which is we're going to grab market share. We're going to borrow and raise equity like crazy in order to do it. And hopefully there'll be some profits somewhere down the line. Now, the remarkable thing is it took about a decade for investors to wise up to that. But eventually they did. And that's why the sector became an irrelevance. And so just coming back to your original question, I think the industry can feel a certain strength in the fact that for all the talk of transition, we're still in a 100 million barrel a day market. Gas demand is still robust. Even coal had a bit of a comeback once the worst of the pandemic began to ease. But if all your incentives and all your kind of mindset is geared to growth, then yeah, you have a problem. So from the perspective of the transition, so thinking about very long-term timeframes and not just sort of what happens in the next year or two, don't we really have to be thinking about not what is oil demand going to be in 2024, but what is it going to be in 2035? Is it still going to be at 100 million barrels a day? or not? Because I think the answer to that question is in a very big way going to dictate the actions of a lot of people here. It's going to dictate the actions of the people who are running the oil majors. It's going to dictate the portfolio balancing of major investors and funds. It's going to dictate the outlook of policymakers who perhaps in the past would have lined up to defend the oil and gas industry and now maybe looking at it and going, guys, yeah, you were once winners and now you're going to be the losers, and I don't want to form policy around you. So isn't that really how we need to be thinking about this? Is like, where is it going to be at in 2035? Because that's also the kind of target that climate policy is being formed around. I would agree. And in the end, the answer to that question is it will be a policy choice. As it stands, oil demand, if we're going to focus on oil for a minute, oil demand could very well still be up around 100 million barrels a day in the 2030s if we don't decide at a societal level to get away from it. It's the power of incumbency. The fact is you can come out with whiz-bang renewables technology, you can 
keep producing and designing ever better electric vehicles, the difficulty you have is that as a society, we don't incentivize those things in a comprehensive way. You know, the value of those non-fossil technologies is their conservation value, the public goods that they provide in terms of mitigating the risk of climate change. We don't put a price on that. Mm -hmm. In some ways, the fossil fuel industry we have is a product of the economic system we have, which has, in general, prized consumption and production rather than conservation. The oil price is a function of supply and demand. It's not a function of supply and demand and the various externalities it produces. And we're clearly in a moment where there is more momentum towards addressing those issues and factoring them more into our purchasing decisions. But we're not there yet. Biden's big climate bill hangs in the balance. And as we draw closer to midterms, the chances of it passing are diminished. Europe is facing very difficult questions about its push towards ever greater use of non-fossil energy precisely because it finds itself for various reasons that have all come together in a standoff with Russia, which still keeps its lights on and still keeps homes heated throughout much of Europe. Mm-hmm. Now, having said all that, I do think there are certain things on the side of energy transition. One is clearly that the economics of renewables and batteries in particular have been getting better. Now, we're seeing some near-term fluctuations around supply chain issues. There are issues around access to critical minerals. I don't think those issues are particularly new, to be honest. I mean, we're swapping issues around access to critical hydrocarbons to issues around critical minerals. I suspect we'll be able to deal with them. If we've been able to deal with them for hydrocarbons, we can deal with them for critical minerals. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. 
We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The world's only carbon capture project on a large power plant, the Boundary Dam Power Station in Saskatchewan, Canada, turned in an abysmal performance in 2021, capturing 43% less carbon dioxide than it did in 2020. Sask Power, the Canadian utility company operating the project, blamed technical issues for forcing the facility to be offline for several months last year. But then again, that's how all CCS projects to date have failed, with the operator blaming technical issues. As if there isn't actually anything fun fundamentally error-prone about the technologies, and the fault lies with exceptional events. Boundary Dam, which was commissioned in 2014, became the world's last remaining power plant equipped with CCS after NRG Energy's Petronova facility in Texas failed in 2020. The plant's CO2 capture rate is years behind schedule, according to a report from IEEFA. Joe Smythe, research and communications manager at the Energy and Policy Institute, put it bluntly. Quote, the fact that Petronova and Boundary Dam both experienced frequent outages during just a few years of operations should serve as a red flag for policymakers and investors considering coal carbon capture proposals. Item 2. CCS-equipped power plants, such as the misleadingly called clean coal plants, have a long track record of failure, going back almost 20 years to an initiative conceived under the George W. Bush administration in 2003 called FutureGen. Since then, both political parties in the U.S. have supported one failed project after Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.